0: Hello, today we're continuing our series on making disciples and we're looking at learning from Jesus. I want you to imagine that you've been asked by God to deliver a life-changing message that you need to get to everyone on the whole planet. God has put at your disposal all his limitless resources, all his uh, amazing power, and he can drop you at any place in the world at any time in history. What would you choose? I think I'd come sort of about now or maybe a bit in the future in the era of mass communication. I think I'd be thinking about putting on some amazing heavenly light display. Uh, A bit like the New Year's Eve fireworks if you saw them in London where you've got amazing fireworks and the drone display where you could send a message. Something like that only on a bigger scale. And I'd make sure it was on TV. I'd make sure it was all across social media. There you go, message to the world, job done. Well, it seems God thinks differently. God sent Jesus to uh, a backwater of the Roman-occupied Israel at a time that we would say was in the technological dark ages. If you wanted to give people a message, you either had to tell them or write it down and then deliver it by hand or horse if you were in a big hurry. And yet we know that God's ways are perfect. His wisdom is perfect. And when we think about Jesus coming, his chosen method seemed to be to spend 30 years or so in relative obscurity and then three years travelling around on foot with 12 pretty unremarkable men and a bunch of women, some of whom were quite dodgy. It doesn't, if I'm honest, sound like a winning strategy, does it? Yet the movement that Jesus started has outlived the empire, all the empires that existed then and all that have existed since. It has overcome every attempt to stamp it out by violence, by intimidation and it's changed the life of billions of people throughout history and around the planet and is still changing people's lives today. So what should we make of God's choice and God's methods? What does it mean and more importantly what should we learn from the way God has gone about it? Well first of all I think one thing it shows us very clearly is that God chose to do it the way he chose because of his personal relational nature. God is a relational God. We can see God is a relational God because he sent his son Jesus came to be like us, fully man and fully God. God didn't send information, God sent an incarnation, God becoming man. He didn't do a press release, he didn't just send a book, although we do have a book, precious book. He came himself. And we also see it in the way that Jesus chose to carry out his mission. It was relational, it was about people, it was about people because God is interested in people more than programs. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't use modern technology to spread the gospel. Let's be honest, if it wasn't for technology, you wouldn't be watching me now, wherever and whenever it is. Of course, we wanna use every means at our disposal to share the good news about Jesus, but that's only part of the story. As I read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, I see Jesus with different groups of people. Jesus clearly had time for the big crowds. He drew big crowds. People flocked to him. He healed them. He taught them. He had compassion of them, wept over them, and he even fed them. He took Every opportunity to spread his message to the masses. And yet he also had time for the one, for the individual, for the people he encountered along the way. Socially outcast woman at a at a well in Samaria, a grieving widow whose only son had died, a dishonest traitor tax collector up a tree, and the, a woman with incurable bleeding who came to Jesus as a last resort. Jesus had time for all of these and many others besides. Because this is God's heart. God wants to reach out to everyone, but he wants to encounter the individual. And if you're looking today and you are not a Christian, let me just re-emphasize that to you. That's God's heart. He is reaching out to you, and he wants to encounter you as an individual. Now, all these crowds and encounters kept Jesus pretty busy. The Bible tells us there were times he he really didn't have time to eat. But Jesus always withdrew back to the 12 disciples. He taught the crowd, but he explained everything to his disciples. And within those 12, he had an even closer inner circle of just three, Peter, James and John. And it was Peter, James, and John that he invited to be close to him at some of the most important moments in his earthly life. When he raised Jairus's daughter from the dead, it was Peter, James, and John that came. When he was transfigured and appeared as he is in heaven, it was Peter, James, and John who were there. And who did he take with him as he wrestled and submitted to God's will in the garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion? Peter, James, and John. It was These and the other disciples that Jesus poured his life into over those three years that he was declaring the kingdom of God. In other words, they related together. Jesus called them his friends. Yeah, Jesus had friends. He had places where he could go and hang out. In Bethany with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and they were friends enough to call on Jesus when Lazarus was sick to go and help him. All of these things suggest to me that Jesus' life was built, was focused around relationships, not around meetings. Fellowship over meals seems to be much more prominent in Jesus' life than meetings and more his thing. Pretty much all of the most significant events in the disciples' lives that we read about happened when they were doing life together. Walking, talking, cooking, eating, working together, doing life. Doing life together with Jesus is what transformed them from pretty ordinary people into radical disciples and followers of Jesus. I find that quite a challenging thought. To think of growing the kingdom by discipling individuals who disciple others, as Steve said last week, disciples who make disciples, seems to me a slow and a a painful process compared with just putting on meetings. And it seems to be more difficult. But there's no doubt that's what Jesus did. How much of my thinking I often find revolves around meetings and judges success by how many people have turned up or not. How easily I find myself drawn into the idea that to make a big impact, you've got to have a big meeting. Simon Holly, one of our New Frontiers leaders noted this, this season he said has highlighted the vulnerability of some of our ways of being church and God has allowed us a window into his perspective on some of what we have built on some of the methods we have inherited, we have an opportunity to come out of this radically transformed. Well, I think that's true. But we'll only be radically transformed if we take the time to reflect and listen to what God is saying to us in this time. God, I believe, is bringing something to birth in this time. And though it's painful, and birth, I believe, is, I believe God is doing something new. Over recent Sundays uh, at Hope Online, I believe we've heard some of the things that God is saying to us that we need to grasp. Let me remind you, we had John Groves bringing us God's heart to woo us back to our first love and to simplicity. We had Steve Chick reminding us that we are a people of destiny. Even at this time, this is the time that God has brought us here for, and the challenge to take up that call. We've heard from Annie Chick about a picture of what God is doing in this apparent winter time for the church, knitting together roots underground. Check it out if you've missed it, because we really need to be thinking and praying about these things. What is God saying? So what am I saying? What am I adding as a thread to those thoughts? Well, I'm certainly not saying, That we should abandon large meetings, that we should abandon meeting together, and I look forward to the day when we'll be able to do that again. But what I am wondering is that perhaps we've lost sight of twos and threes, of the place where real discipling actually happens. Could it be that we've become too focused on our meetings, too reliant on a sort of consumer attitude of being spoon-fed or lazy even about taking responsibility for our own spiritual lives. A big question for me is, are we really set up to make disciples that are gonna change this broken world? In Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus makes us a promise. The context is the power of agreement on earth, between earth, and heaven and he says this for where two or three are gathered together in my name I am there among them or as the message paraphrase puts it and when two or three of you are gathered together because of me you can be sure that I'll be there you know I've heard that verse quoted most often uh, to cover up the disappointment when we've had a meeting and not so many people have turned up. You know, it's a real shame that not many, not so many people have come tonight. But remember, where two or three are gathered, there is Jesus in the midst. Well, I guess that is some sort of consolation. But, you know, I believe this promise of Jesus is meant to be a provocation, not a consolation. A faith stirrer that actually when two or three of us meet, Jesus really is with us he really is there and wherever the risen Jesus is surely anything can happen but do I really believe that when I meet up with Steve or with Phil or, or anyone for that matter they know that Jesus is really there as much as he is on a Sunday morning that he might use me that he might use me to speak to them to encourage them to stir them to uh, pray for them, to comfort them. Maybe we need to be more prepared to be organic rather than organised. Think about Annie's picture of the the roots underground. They're not an organisation chart. It's a living organisation of relationships, of links. And we perhaps need to be more like that. I want to encourage you today and certainly before this season we're in ends to use the time wisely, and to join me in thinking about the balance of different relationships that we have in our lives. Where do I have the crowds, the ones, the small group of friends, my inner circle, and of course, my own relationship with God? If you feel your relationship with God needs refreshing, then I'd encourage you, sign up for our deeper evening on Wednesday, exploring connecting with Jesus as part of our prayer week. You'll find all the details on our website or social media. And I'm gonna come to some practical suggestions at the end. But before I do that, there's one other thing that I wanna say, something that's important. And it's this, that we are called to be a learner. For this whole thing to work, we need to be able to let specific people, not anyone, but trusted friends, into our lives. And that includes, as we are allowed going forward, into our homes, into our families, into our meal tables. And to do that, we need to take up an invitation from Jesus. Let me try and illustrate it. On my 17th birthday, my present was disappointingly small and very thin. When I opened the card, all that was inside was a cheque for some money and a set of these. My parents gave me enough money to start taking driving lessons. Even though I had no prospect of having a car they thought it was a good skill and I think they were right. And they gave me my L plates that I proudly put on my dad's car. I thought I'd probably never get the hang of it but I did pass my test and in the end I threw the L plates Away, I threw away the things that defined me as a learner, that warned everybody around me that they should be careful because anything could happen. I might make mistakes. I might not do things right. I could make unpredictable manoeuvres. Well, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus, the rabbi, invites me and you into a way of life as a learner, as one of these because that's what disciple actually means. Let's read what Jesus said. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, of course, a yoke is one of those things that you put on oxen so they can pull things or you can put on people so they can carry things. But in Jesus's time and for a rabbi, his yoke was his interpretation of how to live out the perfect law of God. So here, Jesus is inviting me and he's inviting you into a lifetime of learning with him that won't weigh us down with impossible expectations but will actually refresh us and transform us from the inside out. Jesus invites us to take on his attitude, his mindset, to learn from him, to become learners, to have hearts like his, lowly and humble. You know, whatever we become in our Christian lives, however much we learn, however far we've gone, we are always disciples. We are always learners, forever this side of heaven. We should never take our L plates off like I did when I passed my test. In our attitudes to ourselves and in our attitudes to others, seeing us as learners helps us to have grace. In fact, I find it a really liberating idea. Being learners takes the pressure off. What do learners do? They make mistakes. That's okay. L-plates also let others know, as I mentioned before, that, that anything could happen around us and it warns others that we are mistake makers too. Being learners sets us free to ask questions, even daft questions. We can be honest and vulnerable without fear and admit that we have needs. And that's what happens as the disciples live their lives with Jesus. I can put a face on for a meeting, but I can't do it all the time. How about you? See, Jesus didn't preach to his disciples, they learned as they lived. And a lowly and a humble heart well, that was something they learned the hard way, not easily. But as they learned to be lowly and humble of heart, they could receive what Jesus was saying to them and making them more like him. And so we can all learn just like the disciples did through the rows they had, through their embarrassing incidents, through conversations, through sharing their ambitions, good or bad, through unbelief, through failures, through successes. It was life with Jesus. If they didn't understand Jesus, they asked him. What was that parable all about? What do you mean it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven? We thought they were the tops. Lord, teach us to pray. They asked Jesus questions and he answered them. Jesus used their arguments to teach them. When they fell out about who was the greatest, he didn't set up a series of seminars on leadership and greatness. He grabbed the nearest child, put it in front of them, and taught them about their hearts. Teaching in the moment. Now, good teaching is essential. No one would disagree with that, but it's not sufficient. It's not enough on its own. It needs to be put into practice in real life. I wonder sometimes whether we've taken the idea that classroom learning is the the best way of learning and assumed it's the same in church. When most of us learn best by modeling, that's what Jesus did. Making mistakes is not the end of the world. The disciples at one point wanted to call down fire from heaven on these people that wouldn't listen to their message. Jesus doesn't give up on them or ditch them. He just says to them, you've really got it all wrong. This is not what we're about. Jesus looked after and taught his disciples through ordinary life. And honesty was the fertile soil that helped them grow and change. Pretending locks us up. Hiding never helps us. So let's get practical. How do we start? Well, it starts as always, as any Sunday school person could tell you, with Jesus. It starts with learning from Jesus' attitude, his lowly, his gentle heart. Discipling has got to start with our response to Jesus. To say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, I'm going to put my L plates on. But once we've come to Jesus, we have to work it out with each other. So please take some time to think about the balance of different relationships you have. Maybe ask yourself, have I actually got deep, real relationships with someone of the same sex? Because we're not talking about the husband-wife relationship. Someone where it's meaningful, where it's deliberate, whether it's spiritual, whether it's honest. Have I got someone with whom I can share my deep and my real questions, my weaknesses, the things I struggle with, my doubts and fears, my joys and sorrows, my triumphs, my tragedies. Have I got someone that I can ask about how they relate to God? How do you pray? How do you hear God? Have I got someone who is going to ask me, what is Jesus saying to you? And what are you doing about it? Now, of course, I know that many of you probably already have relationships, like those I'm describing. I've been so encouraged to hear stories around the church of people developing deeper, closer relationships throughout lockdown. Ironic, isn't it, in a time where our getting together is limited, and that's so encouraging, and I want to encourage you to keep investing in those relationships. Or maybe you've had such relationships, but they've become neglected, Well, I would encourage you to restart them, reinvigorate them, start afresh with a clear purpose and a clear priority that you're going to do it. But if you don't have relationships like that at this point, what should you do? Well, I've got three simple things that I've stolen from Pete Gregg's prayer course, which is brilliant, by the way, if you haven't done it, and I've modified slightly. But here's three things that you can do. Firstly, Keep it small, secondly, keep it simple, and thirdly, keep it up. Keep it small, keep it simple, keep it up. Keep it small. You only need one person. We're not looking for a crowd. Remember, it's two or three gathered together. That person doesn't need to be a great leader, a Christian superhero, just a Christian that you can trust. And it may not be forever. It may be for a season. So keep it small. Keep it simple. Ask each other simple questions. And, equally as important, listen to the answers. How are you? And don't let them fob you off with what I've been filling up my time with. What is God saying to you? What are you doing about it? Simple questions listen to answers. Keep it simple. And finally, keep it up. Set a reasonable pace. Be realistic. Meet or connect in a way that you can sustain, whether it's a monthly coffee, a weekly meeting, a walk, a WhatsApp, whatever. And once you've set it up, keep going, make it a priority until it becomes a habit, because some habits are good. Don't just do it when you feel like it. So keep it up. Keep it small. Keep it simple. Keep it up. You know, it may mean changing some of our thinking. may mean changing some of our priorities. But that's what I'm going to be working on in this season. And I hope that you will join me in doing that. And I hope that as we do it, we'll be learning from Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I wanna thank you that the way you do things is better than the way I would do things, that your ways are best. And Father, I pray that you would help me and help all of us to allow our thinking to be influenced by your thinking. Lord, will you help us to listen to what you are saying in this season to us? Will you help us to take positive, practical action about what you're saying? Father, will you help us to build in the way that you built? Lord, thank you that you came to be a man, fully God, fully man. You know how it is for us. You came to save us and you came to show us the way. And I pray that you would help us to follow you in all your ways. And I pray that you would strengthen us as a church, that we may grow deeper and more like Jesus, and that we would help each other to become more like you, as we all seek to follow you. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.